Welcome to the Left Hand Church Podcast. My name's Paula Stone-Williams, and I'm one of the co-pastors here. We're so glad that you're with us. We love having you join us here at Left Hand. We would love it if you would join us in a financial way as well. You can text any amount to 84321, and we'll receive it. You also can go to our website, lefthandchurch.org, and you can find out there how you can donate. Every time we begin a service, we begin with these words. Married, divorced, and single here. It's one family that mingles here. Conservative and liberal here. We've all got to give a little here. Big and small here. There's room for us all here. Doubt and belief here. We all can receive here. LGBTQ and straight here. There is no hate here. Woman, non-binary, and man here. Everyone can here. Whatever your race here, for all of us, grace here. In imitation of the ridiculous love Almighty God has for each of us and all of us, let us live and love without labels. You know, tonight I want to ask all of us to ask, why did the Christmas story endure like it did? You know, we live in a world of Tiger King and TikTok. My daughter has taught me TikTok. But everyone has their 15 minutes of fame. And then they blend back into the background. But this story, the Christmas story, has persevered. I think there are at least two answers to why the Christmas story has persevered for so long. The first is because it has profound political implications. The second is because it has profound personal implications. Tonight, I'm going to talk for just a couple minutes about the political implications. And Paula's going to talk about the personal implications. So to look at the political implications of the Christmas story, we need to look at what was the world like at the time of Jesus' birth? Who was in charge? And how did that world operate? So first, we're going to talk about Caesar. Then we're going to talk about Herod. Now, Caesar and Herod are two rulers that ruled just before and during the time of the Christmas story. Caesar was the Roman emperor. Herod was his self-appointed puppet king in Judea, where the Christmas story takes place. And finally, we're going to talk about the Christmas story and why a baby being born in a backwater town, in a backwater region of the world, is absolutely radical. First, Caesar. The first Caesar was Julius Caesar, and he came to power 40 or 50 years before the Christmas story. He's most known for inventing a salad, you know. But in the year, that's not true. Jake, that's not true. Don't repeat that. But in the year 42, the Roman government named Caesar a god. And Caesar needed an heir. So he adopted his nephew, Octavian. And Octavian becomes the son of God. Fast forward a little bit, Julius Caesar dies. There's a lot of history that we're gonna sort of skip over, but there's a civil war. And finally, Octavian, Julius Caesar's adopted heir, wins the civil war. And he is named Caesar. The civil war that was raging is now over. Conflict is now over. So the Romans breathed a big sigh of relief and the Romans were thrilled and they spoke of their new Caesar, Octavius, again, Julius Caesar's adopted son, as if he was a god in religious terms. The poet Horace, which is a great name for a poet, said, 
You, O Caesar, have wiped away our sins. Virgil writes in the Aeneid, Augustus Caesar, the son of God, the savior of the human race, is to be honored as a god with sacrifice and hymns. Some of you might be like, yeah, this kind of sounds familiar. It's not an accident. And Caesar sets out to unite the entire Roman Empire, and he conquers everything from England to India. He conquers and builds roads and builds peace. But how does Caesar build peace? With a huge army. And they'd show up in your village and they'd say, declare that Caesar is Lord. And then people in the town would say, yeah, Caesar is Lord. And then you'd be part of the Roman Empire. And the alternative wasn't pretty. If you didn't say it or you refused to say it, they'd strap you to a cross and they'd kill you. They'd say, resist and be crucified. So most folks declared that Caesar is Lord. One first century historian said the Romans butcher, rob, pillage, and call it empire. And where they make, and where they make desolation, they call it peace. They destroy everything in their path in the name of peace. Because after all, if you're dead, right, you're not making trouble. Because at the heart of the Roman Empire, was a particular vision of how you achieved peace by crushing the resistance, by torching the city, by crucifying 2,000 people on the spot if you have to, which is what happened in the city of Emmaus, or in Sepphoris, a small town about 40 miles from an even smaller town that you may have heard of called Nazareth. There's even Roman military propaganda that says there is no name under heaven by which a person can be saved other than that of Caesar. And now Herod. The Romans were great at governing and they'd set up puppet kings to rule the various parts of their empire. So they named Herod the puppet king of Judea, which is the area that encompassed the Christmas story. Herod was not Jewish. And so all the locals, almost all of whom were Jewish, were very suspicious of him. So he had his first wife, who was not Jewish, banished. And he married a Jewish woman to show that he's a man of the people. And how did Herod rule? He hired 2,000 German bodyguards. He set up a secret police network to spy on people. And he ruled ruthlessly. Historian Josephus reports he had two of his sons executed for treason. He says that one of his sons was brought before him. His son begged for his life from his father, but his father showed him no mercy and had him killed. He had his brother-in-law drowned in the family pool. My brother-in-law is here tonight, so watch out, Tim. He had plans to have one of his wives executed. She found out about the plan, refused to sleep with him. He couldn't understand why. He puts her on trial and has her executed. He had his wife's mother and his wife's grandmother killed. Anyone in his way, Herod killed. Herod was so concerned that no one would mourn his death that he gave orders. This is a true story. That when he died, he wanted the most influential people in all of Judea brought into a stadium in Jericho where the doors would be closed and the influential people would be slaughtered at the same time as Herod's death so that there would be mourning in Israel after his death. He's absolutely ruthless. A quick post note to that story. Herod's son and sister refused to carry out the wish, so it didn't happen. 
right? But Herod is not a guy you want to have a beer with. And Herod built huge showy things to show off his power. He was out in the Judean wilderness when he heard that his troops had won a battle against the Parthenians, right? He's out in the middle of the wilderness. He stops on the spot and declares, I'm going to build something right here to commemorate the victory. So what did he do? He had a mountain built there. It's called the Herodium. He had a giant palace built atop the mountain with four corners, each corner seven stories high. He built a pool at the palace that was big enough that you could float boats in the pool, right? This is in the desert. And Herod ruled in Judea from 37 BCE to 4 AD, while Caesar ruled at the same time. And the world was united from England to India, right? We have Caesar, the son of God, the king of kings, the forgiver of our sins, ruling the world using in, in Judea or in Israel, a governor named Herod that was ruthless and enmeshed in the idea of power equaling military might and ruling by fear and intimidation and using his buildings to show power and authority. And into this brutal world, a story emerges about a baby being born in a backwater town, in a backwater region of the world, a baby born to a poor Jewish carpenter and a 13 or 14 year old virgin girl. The story of the Israelites is rooted in the Exodus, a story of God saving his people from an oppressive empire and how this God brought them out into freedom. The name of the God who saves the oppressed is Yahweh. And Joseph is told to name this baby Yeshua. In Hebrew, Yeshua means to rescue or to deliver. So the story of the birth of Jesus answers the question, is Yahweh going to rescue us again? Will there be a new exodus? Is there going to be a new way in the world? Is there going to be a new way that teaches the end of coercive violence that ends bloodshed with peace? And Mary, the teenage girl, upon learning of this child in Luke 146 says, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in my savior. The word Mary uses for savior is Soter. And it's the same word that was used in all of the military propaganda about Caesar. Caesar had been the Soter of the world, but there's a new Soter that's now moved into the neighborhood. And Mary says this, he has brought down the rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. For in a world that was often too brutal and hopeless, this, is a new and glorious morn. Mary is announcing that the Caesars, the Herods of the world, and the systems that they perpetuate are temporary. So at the heart of the Christmas story, we find the truth that power is temporary and that a baby, a baby changes everything. It tells us there is a power at work in the universe that's greater than the power of Caesar. And the Christmas story asks us, who is making a better world, Jesus, or Caesar. And finally, there's a thrill of hope and a weary world rejoices. Oh, holy night, the stars are brightly
My fiftieth year had come and gone. I sat a solitary human in a crowded London shop, an open book, and an op and a coffee cup on the marble tabletop. As on the shop and street I gazed, my body of a sudden blazed. In twenty minutes, more or less, it seemed so great my happiness that I was blessed, and could bless. Those are the words of William Butler Yeats. Stanza four of his great poem, Vacillation. And I really understand and appreciate so much what he was saying, because I do, in fact, feel blessed. I have been wonderfully blessed in my life, which causes me then to want to be a blessing to others. Such a good feeling it is. But then he goes into his very next stanza with very different words. Though summer sunlight gild cloudy leafage of the sky or wintry moonlight sink the field in storm-scattered intricacy, I cannot look thereon. Responsibility so weighs me down. Things said or done long years ago or things I did not do or say, but thought that I might say or do, weigh me down, and not a day, but something is recalled. My conscience or my vanity appalled. What he's talking about is the two halves of life. We spend most of the first half of life trying to figure it out, trying to do what our religion tells us to do, what our family of origin tells us to do, what our culture tells us to do. And then somewhere around the middle of life, we figure out that's not working. We instead must listen deep inside our own souls. So the angel Gabriel spoke the words, you who are highly favored, the Lord is with you. And Mary thought, yeah, I'm not so sure about that. She was suspicious, like you or I would be suspicious, because that's not the kind of language we hear every day. People don't say to us that we are highly favored of God and that God is with us. In fact, from the religious world, we hear the opposite. We hear that God does not want to be with us unless we behave exactly appropriately and that we are not highly favored by God. We're barely tolerated by God. She's troubled, but she lets the angel continue. The angel goes on. And by the time he's done, she realizes the truth. God is with her. 
and she is highly favored by that God. And here's the other truth she comes to know. It's not just her. It's every person in the town of Nazareth. It's every person who's ever been born and every person who will ever be born. And it was amazing. I look at those two stanzas of his poem and I think in one stanza, mistakes. In the other stanza, gratitude. Mistakes and gratitude join together, miraculously produce wisdom. That's right. Mistakes and gratitude joined together produce wisdom. Mary, in reaching into herself to say that she's willing to believe what the angel has said, is showing the first of the three major signs of wisdom. She's trusting her gut. She's trusting her instincts. She's trusting her soul. She's no longer listening to what everybody else has to say. She's no longer following the instructions of her culture or her religion or the patriarchy she'd been born into. She's listening to her heart, to her soul, to her gut, to her instinct. And she says, yes, I believe that I am favored and loved by God and that God is with me. And then she shows us the second sign of great wisdom. She says, yes. She says, yes to God. She says, may it be to me as you have said. And what she is saying yes to is a deeper, more mature spirituality than that into which she was born. According to the culture in which she was born, she should not be saying yes. She should be following 613 laws, rules, and regulations, and then maybe God wouldn't hate her. But she knows better. She's listened to her gut, to her instinct, to her soul. She knows God loves her just as she is, and she says yes to God. That yes is going to get her into a lot of trouble. It doesn't happen. It happens very quickly after that. She's nine months pregnant and her husband has to go back to his hometown and she goes with him, not because she wants to, but because she has no choice but to go. If she stays at home, she'll be killed because the assumption is she's been unfaithful to him. He is her only protection. And so she's forced to go with him later She's forced to take her small child and flee as a refugee to a foreign land. Her entire life continues to be one that is not, in fact, what the religious authorities would have approved. But she's chosen a deeper spirituality. It is a spirituality literally growing within her, the person of Jesus. It is a spirituality growing within her, the awareness of the message he will bring, that religion is not laws. It's loving God, loving neighbor, and loving self. And then she says yes to the third piece of true wisdom. First, she trusts her gut, her instincts, her soul. Second, she rejects traditional spirituality and opts for a more mature spirituality, one focused on loving God, neighbor, and self. And third, 
she chooses meaning over happiness. She could have chosen a happy life. Things were good in Nazareth. Joseph was a very accomplished man, well studied in the Hebrew scriptures, greatly respected in that town. If you were, in fact, a successful tradesman, you were the most effective, successful professional of the village. She would have every good thing she wanted. But she wasn't looking for happiness. She was looking for joy. Happiness comes when you expect it. You go on vacation, you're happy. You get a raise, you're happy. You get a bigger tax return than you expected, you're happy. Joy has a life of its own. And joy arrives with meaning. She chooses a life of meaning that she knows will also be a life of suffering. But she knows it is the wise choice. And sure enough, she stands there and watches her son hanging from a cross until he's gone. And though he's raised again from the dead in just 40 short days, he's gone again. So many losses throughout her life. Would she have had it any other way? <laughs> no. Because Mary shows us true wisdom. She trusted her gut. That God loved her just as she was. She said yes to God and chose a spirituality greater than the simple rule-based spirituality of the day. And she chose meaning over happiness, knowing that when you choose a life of meaning, you may not know a lot of happiness. But you will know joy. God, thank you for the example of Mary. Thank you for the deep, true wisdom. For indeed, mistakes coupled with gratitude do miraculously form wisdom. May we be wise as she was wise. May we trust our guts because your spirit is there. May we opt for the greater, more mature spirituality, the spirituality that says religion is simple. Loving you, loving our neighbor, and loving ourselves. And we, may we, over happiness, choose meaning and purpose, knowing that with meaning and purpose comes joy. Amen. This is John Gaddis. I'm one of the co-pastors here at Left Hand Church. As you listen to this teaching, we hope it was a reminder that the love of God is bigger, more inclusive, and filled with more grace than any of us can imagine. There is truly room for us all here. If you have any questions about Left Hand Church or this teaching, please email me at john at lefthandchurch.org. You can also tune into our live stream services on our church Facebook page every Sunday at 5 p.m. Mountain for great music and original teachings. Thank you for joining us.